Well, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua chapter 5. The end of Joshua 5 is where we'll be today. And I do want to make one more announcement as you turn there. Uh, Next week, we, perhaps next Sunday, but it could be the Sunday after that, we uh, are anticipating being joined by Sam and Abby Zander. Sam is the son of Mike and Heather Zander, who are the station managers at Key Radio. And uh, those two are moving to Payson and are going to show up here. They're young and energetic, and so it'll be fun to have them. Um, it, it would be great if you could give them some sort of a monetary blessing as they start out here. I'm sure you're well aware how difficult it is for a young couple to move to this area. Well, they're moving to this area, and uh, it would be a blessing if you could help them out with a gas card or something. That would be, that'd be a huge blessing. Well, last week in the book of Joshua, we covered a chapter and a half, which uh, isn't our typical practice to cover that much in one sermon. But this week, uh, I'll only be looking at five verses. So uh, maybe I'm overcorrecting. We'll see. But uh, we're just going to look at the last five verses of Joshua chapter 5, and there will be several cross-references as we go along. And uh, before... I get to uh, reading the text. How about I pray again and ask God to particularly bless our time studying this passage. God, we come to you as our provider, our protector, the Lord who is so faithful to us. And God, we ask this morning as we look into your word that you would bless our study, that you would work in the hearts of your people. We ask together that I would not get in the way of your text but that you would use me to preach your word accurately and that you would be lifted up and honored in this place. Lord, have your word be clear to your people this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we reflect on Joshua's biography and what we know about what Joshua went through, in the first sermon of this series, we looked at a lot of those events, Exodus and Numbers and so on. We can tell that Joshua knew intimately about the power of God and the presence of God, didn't he? In Exodus chapter 17, there's that story of Joshua was to go out and fight the Amalekites. It was Israel's first battle. They've left Egypt, and when Moses' arms were raised, Israel would succeed. They'd have victory. And Joshua was the one in the battle in combat. And so he intimately experienced the power of God in battle from the beginning of Israel's exodus. You think about those times that Joshua and Moses would go out and they would meet with the Lord outside of the camp. And Moses would come back to the camp and Joshua would linger behind, the text says. Joshua intimately knew the presence of God, didn't he? Very intimate time spent with Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. And what Joshua was learning is that God's power is always personal. This is important for us to hang on to as Christians. God's power is always personal. So many people want to talk about God and His power as though it's out there, distant, unknowable, some sort of deist form of religion. But our God is a personal God, isn't He? And His power is always displayed in personal ways. He he touches us. He uses us as His people. He's very personal. He knows us by name. 
I was struck this week as I was giving an overview of the book of Job. There at the beginning where you have God dialoguing with Satan, which is just so unique and interesting, isn't it? God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Job's name was on God's lips, so to speak. He knows us by name. He sees what we're doing. He knows us intimately. That's striking that God is that personal. With all of His power, all of His knowledge, His overwhelming presence, He's still a personal God. And we're going to see more of that in this passage. Joshua is going to learn over again God's personal power in His provision and His protection. Let's start reading in verse 10, Joshua chapter 5, verse 10. It says, While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the fourteenth day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year." Well, they, uh, we learn here that the Israelites had been eating manna all along. We've been reading this story as they've come up to the Jordan. They're headed toward the land of Canaan, and they're coming out of the wilderness. God is going to bring them through the Jordan River miraculously, which we already covered. And now they're going into the land of Canaan. They're approaching Jericho. And this whole time, what have they been eating? Perhaps you thought they packed cliff bars or something, and that's what they were snacking on. But no, it was manna. We find here that they were still eating manna, and this is the only appearance of manna in the book of Joshua, the only time it's mentioned. And so I want to take the time today to give you a doctrine of manna, (laughs) to examine this topic of manna, to ponder this amazing act of God's providence. Because if we just pass over and say, well, manna, that's just God's bread, we're actually missing the really big story and the symbolism that's found in manna. So the first question we need to answer, of course, is what was manna? (laughs) And for that, we need to turn back to Exodus 16. Turn with me to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 16, and we'll start with the first verse. To put simply, manna was heavenly food that was miraculously delivered to Israel from God. Heavenly food miraculously delivered to Israel from God. And in Exodus 16, we're going to see that manna was first given outside of Egypt when the people were grumbling about being hungry. Their stomachs were grumbling, and so they made their mouths grumble too. Let's pick up Exodus 16, verse 1. It says, Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt." The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What a bunch of babies. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk by my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for He hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? Well, this is an amazing thing that the Lord is doing, that the Lord would provide for such a grumbling, sinful, rebellious, stiff-necked people that He would rain them bread from heaven. You see, what had happened in Israel's history so far, we're only a few chapters removed from the Red Sea. It's the same generation. What had happened in Israel's history is they had become unamazed by God's deliverance. They had become unamazed by this miraculous Red Sea crossing that was a great example of the provisions of God. Look again with me, this same passage. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron, this is what they say to Israel, at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Well, that's weird. How could they not know that? (laughs) They're no longer in Egypt. They're no longer in slavery in Egypt. But amazingly, in just a matter of a short span of time, they had become just accustomed to their new circumstance and unamused, nonchalant about the power of God to deliver them through the Red Sea and kill the Egyptians who were chasing them. Like our ability to forget, we have the ability to become nonchalant with the things right in front of us, don't we? We talked about forgetting last week, how important it is to remember. Remember the the sermon title last week, Don't Forget to Remember, okay? Tie a string on your finger. So that'll remind you to remember, okay? That's supposed to be funny, okay? All right, (laughs) remember what? Well, there's all sorts of things. And just like our ability to forget, we have the ability to become unamazed by God's amazing works, don't we? And that is a grave error in life, to get used to this miracle that we live in. If you're a Christian, your new heart, your new spirit, your new nature, it's a miracle, If you're opening the refrigerator and you're seeing food, that's amazing. That's provision from God. We should never take God's amazing provision for granted. And here we see the worst of it, that Israel could take God's redemption through the Red Sea for granted. Well, God kept providing for them as they wandered. But let's read some more about the details of this. Drop down to verse 13 with me, same chapter, Exodus 16, verse 13. This is how it happened. It says, So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing. Don't you love that that description? A flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. We'll get some more description if you drop down to verse 31. Same chapter, drop down Exodus 16, 31. 
It says that the house of Israel named this flake-like thing manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. Wow. He didn't have to make it taste good, but he did. It was like wafers with honey. Well, as they kept wandering in the wilderness, guess what happened to their relationship with the manna? Well, they got nonchalant with that too. They got used to that too. They started grumbling about that too. Turn with me as we work our way back to Joshua to Numbers. Stop at the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 11. And look at how God keeps providing and Israel keeps just getting used to His amazing provision. Numbers chapter 11, and we'll start at verse 4. Look to it how it describes Israel. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. And they were probably stomping their feet too, like a bunch of toddlers. Now the manna, verse 7, was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of delium. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it on the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. What a miracle that God just kept giving them bread wherever they went. You know those Doppler radars that weathermen use today? If there was a Doppler radar for the manna back then, wherever the camp of Israel went, there was just the manna going right with them. That dew would settle and there would be God's amazing provision of bread. I want to read to you from Psalm 78. This is a great cross-reference to, again, describe in more detail this manna that God provided. Psalm 78, verse 24, He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. And I love this next verse. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. Now, that's quite the description of manna, isn't it? Not just bread of heaven, but the food of angels was given to Israel And what did Israel do? Well, they kept whining, they kept complaining, and they got nonchalant with God's amazing acts of provision. Well, that's what it was, but we do well to examine why. Why did God give them this bread? It's certainly not because they deserved it, right? It's not because any of us deserve anything from the hand of God. And a simple answer would be that they needed to eat. They complained to God, they needed to eat, they complained to Him about it, and He provided. And that's the basic answer, but that's not the full reality. What else is there for us to see about this? Well, we learn, like we do in many occasions throughout the Bible, we learn from this event that God is the ultimate provider, isn't He? When you can rely on no one else, when you have nothing else, and all your resources are depleted and you're just in a wilderness, God is the provider. He's the ultimate provider in our lives. He's the ultimate provider for His people. And He cared for these people all through this generation. Remember, they were in the wilderness 40 years. And up until that time that we just read about in Joshua, He kept providing. That dew would come faithfully because God is faithful, the ultimate faithful provider. 
And beyond that, God gave them a sign that would be understood by future generations in an ultimate, in an ultimate understanding of God's provision. Let's uh, turn, if you can, with me to John chapter 6, forward to the New Testament, because Jesus talked about manna. He was asked about manna, rather, and He gave a response in John chapter 6. And I want us to look at verses 30 to 34 so we can get this fuller sense of what God was teaching us and God was teaching them about His provision. This is after Jesus fed the 5,000. We read in John chapter 6, verse 30, They said to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven." For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Well, after feeding the 5,000, they naturally needed another sign, right? After taking a couple loaves and a little bit of fish and multiplying it, they said, yeah, that's, that's interesting, but what sign will you provide us? Well, the Jews thought Jesus' sign was inferior to Moses' sign. Look with me again, down in verse 31, where they said to him, Our fathers ate manna. And they thought Jesus, well, he didn't quite give them something as miraculous as what Moses gave them. This is from J. Carl Laney's commentary on John. He said, Moses provided bread for a nation. Christ provided for a multitude. Moses provided bread for 40 years. Christ for one day. Moses provided bread from heaven. Jesus gave them bread from earth. Perhaps that was their thinking. Well, Moses gave them bread out of heaven for a whole generation, and you just fed this multitude with bread from earth for one day. Jesus, of course, corrects their thinking and lets them know it wasn't Moses, it was God. Moses didn't provide them anything. This was the power of the Father. And Jesus introduces them to something better. He says, there is bread from heaven that can take care of your spiritual condition. In the feeding of the 5,000, He, of course, gave them nourishment for their physical bodies, but He's talking about something else when He says, there's the true bread from heaven, and this will nourish your soul. This will sustain you spiritually. Well, not only that, we see in the New Testament there was another sign in God's wilderness provision. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is the last cross-reference before going back to Joshua. 1 Corinthians 10, the first five verses, we learn that God's provision in the wilderness through Moses was a prefigurement of more ultimate provision. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1, it says, "'For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea.'" And they all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Not only was Jesus prefigured as bread, 
But we see here that Jesus was prefigured as water. The rock was Christ. The rock provided provision, ultimate provision for Israel, both physically and spiritually as they came to God in faith. As God is the ultimate provider, we see Jesus being the ultimate provision from God. God is the ultimate provider, and Jesus is the ultimate provision. There was bread and there was water in the wilderness prefiguring the spiritual sustenance that we have in the church in Christ. Christ is our covenant. Christ is our salvation. Christ is the way that we're made right with God. He's the ultimate provision from the ultimate provider, isn't He? And manna was an example, an illustration of God's provision for us. Giving the Israelites manna was much more, was about much more than filling tummies, wasn't it? (laughs) There was a lot going on. And if we go back to Joshua 5 and read the passage, look at the passage again, we see that it was time for them to transition from that manna. We'll start at verse 11 again of Joshua chapter 5 where it says, On that day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. It was time to transition from heavenly food to earthy food. The wilderness era was over for Israel, and a new era was beginning. The provider gave them a land with produce. They had this new food. Did you catch the description of the new food? It was basically just simple ground wheat pastries that they would make, but it was from the land. It was no longer from that miraculous dew that would appear and leave bread. They were taking ownership of the land. Notice they didn't have to ask permission. They weren't to go around finding Canaanites and saying, excuse me, may we please have some of this grain? This was their land. And God here is instructing them to eat their food. It's kind of like, for any of you who have bought a house, you know that the process kind of feels like 40 years in the wilderness sometimes. It's a long, drawn-out process full of all sorts of ups and downs. But it all leads up to that amazing transition moment where you're told you can have the keys. When you get the keys to your house and you're able to go in, and I remember when we got our keys and we were able to go in and our family scrunched together and we took a selfie in this big empty house because that thing was ours. Ask the lending company and they would probably say otherwise, but in our minds, that thing is ours, right? That house is ours. We have the keys. Well, as Israel came into this land, this transition is they're no longer feasting on manna, which had incredible spiritual significance, which teaches them incredible things about God's provision. They're now taking ownership of this land, aren't they? They're eating their food in their land. They were transitioning from extraordinary provision to God's ordinary provision, the provision that we experience so often day in and day out, which is no less amazing than His extraordinary provision, is it? When we slow down and we think about how do we get that clean water coming through our faucet? How many of us could explain the entire process or the electricity to turn our lights on or the internet that runs our communication with so many people? How do we know how, how does that happen? Well, ultimately, this is God's provision for us, isn't it? He uses all sorts of channels in the world 
but He's the ultimate provider. And it's an amazing thing. Well, on the way to Jericho, we see in the remainder of this chapter that Joshua was caught alone and he had an amazing spiritual experience as he continues to learn more and more about God's personal power. He experiences God's personal power once more in a very unique event. Let's read verses 13 to 15. It says, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Well, Joshua was interacting with no mere man here. This was a profoundly unique encounter that Joshua had. Let's make some observations from the text. This man appeared suddenly. You see that? We just have this abrupt statement that Joshua lifted up his eyes, verse 13, and there this man was. That phrase, he lifted up his eyes, it's the same phrase that's used of Abraham back in Genesis 18 when Abraham met the three men and he interacted with the angel of the Lord. He lifted up his eyes and there he had his vision. Joshua lifted up his eyes and he sees this man very abruptly. We see that this man has a drawn sword and an official title. A drawn sword and an official title. In the New American Standard that I'm preaching from this morning, it says that he's the captain of the host of the Lord, the captain of the host of Yahweh. Your translation might say that he's the commander of the Lord's army. Either way, it's the same idea. He's a captain, he's a commander, he's in charge of God's force. And we see a great first question from Joshua when he hears that this man is, or when he sees rather, that this man is here with a sword drawn. Joshua, as the leader of the people, he asks, who are you for? Are you on our team or their team? And you can just imagine Joshua as a warrior in battle-ready stance, probably drawn his weapon. And there he is, who are you for? And I'm ready to do business if you give the wrong answer. Well, as great as that question was, I think the answer is even better because this captain, this commander, doesn't answer the question. He says, no. Well, that wasn't a yes or no question, was it? He didn't say, are you for us? That would have been yes or no. He didn't say, are you for our adversaries? That would have been yes or no. He said, are you for us or for our adversaries? No. That's not all he said. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. An amazing non-answer to Joshua's question. But we can infer that he was basically saying, I'm not your neighbor. I'm not a mere man who picks sides. You can't put me into a category. I'm greater than that. I'm greater than the categories you have prescribed. He's the captain of the host of the Lord. He's the undisputed leader of God's army. There's no one else who shares this position. He is the captain. He is the commander. And as we consider what the Lord's army is or the, the Lord's host, it could be referring to two things or both of these things. 
We see the word host that comes up here in this text to refer to angels throughout the Bible. He could be saying, I'm the captain of God's angelic force, leading them in spiritual warfare. You know that phrase that we, that we sing in A Mighty Fortress, the hymn by Martin Luther, Lord Sabaoth is his name. How often have we sung that and had no idea what we were singing? <laughs> it's not quite Sabbath. It's not Lord Sabbath is his name. It's Lord Sabaoth. Well, that's an antiquated term that refers to the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is his name, and it could be that this host is angels. It could also be that this host, this army, is in reference to the people, physically, the descendants of Abraham, the army of Israel, not just leading them spiritually, but leading them in physical warfare. There he is appearing with a drawn sword. Perhaps he's saying he's the commander of the people themselves, and he will lead them in their battles against other people. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment, and next week Tyler's going to talk to you about this a lot more, but I'm just going to give you a heads up that this is something you will have to come to grips with in the book of Joshua, that our Lord is intimately involved in these physical battles in Israel where men, women, and children are put to death. And that can be alarming for some people. Well, how could God be be so aggressive? How could God be involved in bloodshed? How could God be involved in war and battle? Well, this all comes back to the holiness of God, doesn't it? The answer is yes, it does. It comes back to God's holiness. Because when you are in the presence of a holy God, can you stand? You can't. Not on your own, not by your nature. Can you rebel against a holy God and live? No, you cannot. Can you reject your holy maker and expect reward? No, you can't. And we see in the story of Israel and what God is doing through this nation as setting His people apart is that His holiness is being magnified. His sovereign power is being magnified. That He is not like man, but He is over and above man. He's the maker of man, and He is holy. We can get pretty freaked out about God being involved in battle and giving Israel victory in bloodshed. But let's never forget that this is the God who flooded the earth. And besides, eight people, men, women, and children were lost in the flood. You have to reckon with the holiness of God. And when you understand it and when you submit to who God is and say, have your way, Lord, then you begin to know Him as He truly is. You get to see Him as He truly is. But it takes a great deal of humility. Because what does our pride say? You can't do that. Can you say that to a holy God and live? The answer is no. Well, this holy one who's before Joshua is, in fact, a warrior. He will purge evil. The one before Joshua is the one with the power to direct the battle to fulfill God's will. He is the most powerful person. And he's a holy person. Look again at verse 15. This captain, the captain of the Lord's host, said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. He's a holy person who accepts 
worship from Joshua. Joshua was to recognize the captain, the commander, as a holy one. This is very similar, of course, to Exodus chapter 3, when you think about Moses before the burning bush. Perhaps you remember, Moses was told by the angel of the Lord who was speaking to him out of the bush, take the sandals off your feet, for this is holy ground. And these two instances are the only time that we have in the Bible where a man is told to take the sandals off of his feet, where he's told that the ground is holy, so remove your shoes. Joshua, again, is in Moses' place as the leader of Israel, and he's going through a lot of the same experiences that Moses had. This is very similar to the burning bush. But this statement that is made by the commander of the Lord's army when he says, take off your sandals, this is holy ground, no created being could ever say that. No creature, no mere creature could ever make such an assertion. Do you know how the Jews interpret this passage? Because the Jews can't see Jesus here. And so the Jews say, this is an angel. It's just an angel. He, Joshua was confronted with an angelic being. Doesn't work. An angelic being can't accept worship. An angelic being cannot declare his own holiness and say, take off your sandals to a man. This isn't just an angel. That would have been blasphemous for an angel to say. Because that piece of ground was no different than the previous 10 miles that Joshua had traversed. That particular piece of ground wasn't any different than the, the bank of, of uh, the Jordan River. It's just a piece of earth until the presence of the commander of the Lord's army is there. Now the ground is different. It's holy ground because of His presence. And so clearly we must conclude this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is an appearance of Jesus Christ before He was born in the flesh. This is the angel of the Lord who spoke to Moses from the bush. This is the Son of God appearing to Joshua. This is Jesus. And Jesus is the person of the Godhead who appears to us. I want to read to you a couple verses from the book of John. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time, but look at this. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. No one has seen the Father at any time, but Jesus, the only begotten God, has explained Him, has exegeted Him, has made Him manifest in His presence among us. Again, this is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 46. Jesus says, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So the person of Jesus Christ is the person who comes to us, the person of the Godhead who appears to us. And He's not passive. He's not weak. He is not submissive to any creature. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he is, in fact, a warrior. Did you know that in Exodus 15.3, it says that Yahweh, the Lord, is a man of war. He's a warrior. The Lord is His name. And that's not some metaphor. That doesn't mean that God's really brave. That doesn't mean that God's tough or something like that. It means He's a warrior. It means He's a warrior. And we see this in the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus would often appear with a sword. Not just here with Joshua, but in Numbers chapter 22, this is when the angel of the Lord appeared to Balaam. And you remember this story for the talking donkey, don't you? <laughs> yeah. He didn't sound like Eddie Murphy, 
Uh, but uh, you remember this story because a donkey spoke. Well, look what else is here. It says that God was angry because he, Balaam, was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field, but Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back to the way. There's the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, appearing once again with a drawn sword in his hand. Yahweh is a warrior, and we see that in Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, when Jesus was teaching the multitudes in in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, one of the first verses I ever memorized, he told the people, don't think I came to bring peace on earth. And 99% of our world says, what? We thought Jesus was here to bring peace. And Jesus tells us specifically, don't think I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, of course, in our day and age, he hasn't put a physical sword in the church's hands. In fact, the church has been told That our battle is not against flesh and blood, but our battle is against the principalities of the air. Our battle is in the spiritual realm. But notice how it's described. You are in a battle. And you've been equipped by the Spirit with a sword. And Jesus' sword divides people, doesn't it? And it won't stay spiritual. Because you know what's going to happen at Jesus' second coming? In Revelation 19, it describes what Jesus will look like. It says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Does that sound like a weak Savior to you? Or a soft man? No. Our God is mighty. Our Savior is a warrior. And here he's appearing to Joshua in our text with that drawn sword. And he's saying he's the leader of God's host. The Lord Jesus was Israel's commander. As Francis Schaeffer said, Moses died, but the true leader went on, Jesus. And this leads us to a very important thought When we were considering the manna, I told you that Jesus is the ultimate provision from God. God is our ultimate provider. Jesus is the ultimate provision. Well, let me give you another thought. God is our ultimate protector, but Jesus is the ultimate protection from God. We have our ultimate protection in this life and in the next in Jesus Christ. For Israel, they experienced tangible, physical manifestations of God's provision and protection with the manna, with this vision that Joshua's having, his interaction, his dialogue with Jesus Christ. But we experience this power too, don't we? We experience God's power as well in His provision and in His protection, both physically and spiritually. In fact, we have the enjoyment of the greater work The greatest work, which is salvation imparted to human hearts, which is the new covenant community that God is forming by sending His Spirit and changing us. What provision and what protection we have in salvation? The ultimate provision of Jesus Christ and protection from Jesus Christ imparted in our hearts. So I want to close this with just asking you a few questions. What do you have 
That's question number one. Well, whatever your answer is to that, what do you have? You need to thank God as your provider because what you have is from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from, from above, we read in James 1. God is your provider. And out of all the things that you have to thank God for, you as a Christian should thank God mostly for your salvation in Jesus Christ. That is number one, because Jesus Christ is the ultimate provision from God as our provider. My second question for you is, what do you fear? Not just what do you have, but what do you fear? Let me encourage you, saints, the Lord is for you. Do you know that Scripture tells us that? The Lord is for you. You shall not fear. He is your protector, and He will protect you for all eternity, dear Christian, because you've been united to your ultimate protection, who is Jesus Christ. No one can snatch you out of the hand of ultimate protection. You are there, secure for all eternity. Who should you fear? The Lord is for you. The commander of God's army is on your side. Another question, to whom shall you look? Not just what do you have, not just what do you fear, but to whom shall you look? Where does your help come from? The psalmist says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Is there anything that God cannot do? Is there any way that His hand is short in providing for you? No way. Is there any, any enemy out there who can skirt around the protection of God where His defense is weak? Not a chance, saint. Not a chance. He will help you. He never forsakes His own. He will guide you. He will direct you. He will not make your life comfortable, but He will help you through all the discomfort. He will help you through every trial. He will see you through. He will carry you to the end. He's not going to take away your troubles. In fact, Jesus promised us what? In this world, you will have trouble, but He's your help, and He will bring you through. We were singing that great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And each time we sing it, I, <clears throat> I'm reminded, I'm going to cry. There's just no way I can say it without crying. I remember that that's my wife's favorite hymn. And I think back to the days when we just had, you know, newborn baby, three in a row. And those evenings when the baby would be just crying. And there's nothing you can do for that little baby. But hold the baby and in our house, sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And what an amazing picture as we desire to provide for and protect this little defenseless bundle of joy. And God has us, and we can't take all the troubles away for that baby. We can't clear a path and make life easy for that baby. We can't get into the brain of that baby and, and convince that baby that everything is taken care of. But we can hold the baby. We can sing we can speak love over that baby. 
And that is a picture of what God is doing for us in this life as our ultimate provider, our ultimate protector. And the provision and protection we have in Jesus, we are in God's arms for all eternity. And He will never let us go. Every substitute for provision or protection that you find in this life will fail you. If you go looking for provision in your own efforts, you will fall short. If you go looking for protection from from someone else, that person is going to fail you. That person will always fail you because that person isn't God. If you just leave it all to random chance, there will be no ultimate provision or protection in that. But God in Christ will never fail you. He will never let you go. And He's calling you to draw near. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And by His Spirit, He will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding as He provides and protects each and every day. Let's pray. God, You are faithful. We can only sing about Your faithfulness because we don't have any. You are the one who keeps us. You are the one who has called us and has given us an eternal resting place. You've given us a hope that surpasses any kind of worldly wishful thinking. And as we continue to consider what Christ means to us, help us to find that joy and that peace by your Spirit that motivates us to live a life for you as you take us every step of the way. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.